Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you, um, I'd like to ask you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be starting in the second half of verse 10 and going down to verse 22. So it's a rather long passage here this morning. And uh, this, for those of you who, who may not remember, this is a continuation of our series, uh, Remember and Beware, um, looking at the book of 2 Peter. And today we're going to be looking at the true nature and consequences of false teachers. The passage today that we're looking at is, is in many ways the other side of the coin to chapter 1 of, of, of 2 Peter. Now it's been a little while since we looked at chapter 1. I think it's been like half a year or a year. So if you can remember all the way back to when we started the series, you might recall that in chapter 1 we were encouraged to, to know and kind of live out um, and have confidence in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true word of God. However, our passage today is, is the alternative to that. It's the alternative to obeying chapter 1. Here we have the false teachers and thus those who follow them being ignorant So they don't know the gospel, they're ignorant of the gospel, they live in opposition to the gospel, and they're destined for destruction. And we saw back in February, the last time we looked at this series, earlier in chapter 2, what that destruction looks like. Instead of knowing the freedom of Christ, false teachers are enslaved to their passions. They're like wild animals. Instead of kind of living out the gospel in their lives and thus confirming the calling on them, they're living in opposition to the gospel following their passions wherever they lead. And instead of standing on the sure word of God, his promise of hope and forgiveness, as John Piper talked about just now, recently here, they stand condemned, destined for destruction. And this here is a warning for us to watch out because what Peter is talking about is not some sort of theoretical, airy-fairy possibility. It's all around us. It's everywhere. And so if you want to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, this is a pretty long passage, and we're going to dive right in, um, not to waste any time, starting in the second half of verse 10. Let's look at God's word. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they don't understand. They're like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back for the harm, for, with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mist driven by storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and entangled in it, 
and again entangled in it and are overcome. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed to them. Of the Proverbs, of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to wallowing in the mud. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Imagine were I to stand up here and say these words about, or the words are disappeared now, uh, but the words that were there about someone who attended Calvary. What would you guys think? I'm pretty sure that most of you would be more than a little appalled. I mean, I wish you could have seen your faces as I was reading this. I could see the the looks on your faces as I'm reading this passage because this passage, at the very least, makes us feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, it goes against everything that our culture as a whole wants to impress upon us. You know, we are told by our culture and, and, and those around us to be tolerant. Yet this passage is most definitely not tolerant. We are told not to judge others. And this passage passes an awful lot of judgment. And it's not just the kind of you are wrong sort of judgment. This is like profound statements about the worth of people. Imagine if I said that you were a dog and born for destruction. You only existed so you could be destroyed. I compared you to Hitler. And yet, and yet, this is the good, life-giving, healing, pleasing, and true word of God. This is God speaking. And so however uncomfortable it might make us feel, we need to sit up and listen. So this morning, I want to draw your attention to to what I think are the two big themes of this passage. So if you're the note-taking type and you like to write out the the big bullets, then then here they are for you. The first one is, is the true nature of false teachers. Who they really are. How God sees them. And, And second is the consequences of false teachers. What are the results when they're allowed to have free reign? And then I want to conclude with a few real-world examples to maybe kind of put this into context for us because, as I've said many times over the course of this series, this is not some sort of like intellectual exercise that we're going through. This is, this is life and death. So let's start by looking at the first at the true nature of false teachers. So Peter describes in our passage false teachers as sinful, unreasoning animals born for destruction. And I want you all to understand that as offensive as you may think this sounds, to the culture that Peter is writing to, this is so much more profoundly derogatory than you realize. Dogs and pigs, I mean, we don't generally think of them as majestic animals. I mean, though I suppose there's probably some dog, we're dog lovers in the room. We're some dog lovers, okay. We've got a few dog lovers in the room. But in the culture we're writing here, these are unclean animals. These are, like, you know, if you're looking, the dogs were just kind of these mangy mutts that guarded the villages. And the, the pigs are like these dirty animals. No one wants to be, the lowest of the low are the people who look after the pigs, right? This is not... If you guys remember, actually, the parable of the, uh, of the prodigal son, where does he end up? Where did, when, he, when he crashes, where does he end up? He ends up feeding pigs. Right, exactly. So Peter 
And Peter's not the only person to compare false teachers to dogs and pigs. Um, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, Paul says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And in this case, Paul, rather, was talking specifically about the Judaizers, who were a group of Jewish converts who were trying to make Christians follow the Mosaic law, and particularly they said you needed to be circumcised to be a Christian, to be a proper Christian. And Paul calls them out for this and calls them dogs. But Peter doesn't stop at comparing them to animals. He also says they're like Balaam. Now, who was Balaam, you may ask? And I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's a bit of a rabbit trail. So if you're curious, then you can just write down that you can go read after, afterwards Numbers chapters 22 to 24. And that tells you most of the story of Balaam. He occurs a little bit later. He, he shows up when he, when he gets finally judged. But most of the story of Balaam is in chapters 22 to 24. But in short, if I was to translate this to you, into kind of a modern context, because, because I, I want to get the feeling here as opposed to, the, as opposed to kind of the nitty-gritty details. If I was to say someone who followed after Balaam had, or had followed in the path of Balaam, a modern way of saying it might be like you followed in the path of Hitler. <laughs> like, you know, this is, this is someone who is universally understood as being a scumbag. And, 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 and Balaam is like Hitler, not in the sense that he did the same things, but in the sort of feelings that comparing someone to him would evoke. That, that you know, this is a universally bad and profoundly insulting comparison. He was a byword for corruption and evil. And in much the same way that Hitler is, is one of the most derogatory comparisons you can make now, Balaam would have had a similar effect. So why does Peter levy these quotes? or these insults at false teachers. Well, there are three defining sins that, that Peter accuses false teachers of, and, and the, the insults, quote-unquote, the, the, the statements about the false teacher's worth are related to those sins. In my experience, if you were to look at any given false teacher, you'll find one of these sins at the root of their, of their teaching. And so it's in the context of these sins Peter paints the worth of false teachers. So, let's take a look at verse 10. And the first defining sin of false teachers, the sin of pride. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they don't understand. See, the false teachers were brushing off and discounting the spiritual forces of darkness around them. They were brushing off and, and discounting demons. And Peter is saying, not even the angels do this. You know, the angels who are much more powerful than us don't go there. They fight them, they oppose them, they judge them, but they do not discount them or take them lightly. They respect their power. The false teachers were playing with fire and not giving it the respect it deserves. This, this kind of this theme of arrogance on the part of false teachers is littered throughout the Bible. And it follows on the pattern of the first liar, the devil. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17, it should show up on the overhead there. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and made a spectacle of you before the kings. 
This is talking about the devil, and he was chucked out because he thought he was something. And again, in 1 Timothy 3.6, which Steve has already actually looked at, Timothy notes that new converts should not be made elders lest they become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Jude echoes this same thought in verses 8 and 10. What he says, yet in the same way on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet these people slander what they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. See, this arrogance is, is, a, is a defining characteristic of false teachers. They will talk confidently without actually understanding I mean, we've all, we've all known the person, right? Like, you, you've, you've had that friend who, who talks with great gusto and very confidently, confidently about what they don't actually know anything about. We've all met that person, right? And, and, and this is what false teachers are like. They assert new things that no one has ever thought of before. I mean, just think about that for a second. If I were to stand in front of you and declare, I am the first person in the history of the church to truly understand this passage. No one else has understood it before me. What would you think? I've got new insight. You guys should understand, listen to me. Well, I would hope you would say that I was a fool and not let me preach it again anytime soon because think about how incredibly arrogant that statement is. I have understood what for thousands of years faithful godly men and women failed to grasp. God never saw fit to reveal it to anyone of them, but he, he saw fit to reveal it to me. And Steve and I were having a laugh. I was talking to him while I was, um, before he left. I was talking about, about my sermon. I was mentioning how I get uncomfortable when celebrity teachers stick their name on their organization. You know, like um, they head up. And, and imagine this for a second. Were we to rename Calvary Baptist Church to Steve Bray Ministries? I mean, it doesn't really put the focus in the right place, does it? I say this is sort of in jest. Um, but there, but there, there is a, a, tr a bit of truth to this. That, that, that you know, oftentimes... We, we put the focus of these things in the wrong place. And, and false teachers in particular do this. And it's pride that labels false, Peter rather, to label the false teachers as, as ignorant animal, unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. If you will, they're like chickens, which are bred to be eaten. That's how God views them. They're destined for destruction. The second defining sin of false teachers is, the sexual, is sexual immorality or sensuality. Let's take a look at verse 13. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, a cursed brood. And this has been touched on before, but what really strikes me about this passage is not so much the sin that's mentioned here and the condemnation that God heaps on them, but, but the brazen way in the, which they do it. As a general rule, you know, sin tends to be conducted at night under the cover of darkness, right? We, we don't like our sin to be exposed to light. 
And, and this was particularly true in the time period where even the Romans, though, and the Romans were guilty of many sins, um, they had no problems with a, lot of, with, with a lot of these things, but they were only fine with them as long as they were conducted discreetly under the cover of darkness. And, and so doing something in the day, in broad daylight, was even looked on poorly by the Romans at the time. But not wanting to wait until nightfall, these false teachers revel in their pleasures in the daytime. And, and notice when the passage says, while they feast with you, that's most likely referring here to the Lord's Supper. This is talking about while they come to celebrate the Lord's table, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the def- one of the defining things that Jesus left with us to conduct in memory of him as we come together as the church to do this, that's when they carouse in broad daylight. These people are in the church. These are not like some random outsiders who are running around doing crazy things. No, these are people who claim to be Christians and at least on the outside go through the outward motions of looking like a Christian. But while being within the church, they proudly display their sin trying to legitimize it. And with their eyes and their hearts focused on their adultery, they drag others into sin too. The unstable here are the opposite of stable. They're those who are not built up in the truth. They're vulnerable to the suggestive lies of the false teachers. And because of this, Peter calls them an accursed brood. How's that for a compliment? Literally, accursed children. In other words, they are under God's curse, standing under his judgment that God is waiting for them. Peter is kind of reflecting a Hebrew expression here that people are children here of whatever most dominates their lives. And this is in contrast to the idea of obedient children of God, right? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 19, Peter actually says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Catch this, as as obedient children of God, he's talking about here, be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Rejecting what God has done for us, rejecting the call on our lives that flows out of, as John Piper talked about, we are already saved, but now Christ has saved those already saved, already made perfect, those who are being saved. Rejecting that is rejecting the blood of Christ and we become children of wrath accursed children. And finally, the third defining sin of false teachers is greed. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. Verse four, sorry. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. As we mentioned before, comparing someone to Balaam was a little bit like in the feeling of comparing you to Hitler. The big difference being here, Balaam's sin 
in particular was that he accepted payment from a pagan king in exchange to curse Israel. So he took some money in exchange to pronounce curses on Israel. And in the same way, false teachers accept material gain and distort the truth in order to get it. They're not really interested in God. They don't care about you. They want God's stuff. They want material blessings. And actually, if we saw back at the beginning of chapter 2, they actually exploit their followers to get material blessings. And there's an irony here which links back to the the earlier statements about false teachers' worth that a donkey spoke more truth. So a a stupid animal spoke more truth than the quote-unquote prophet. And for this selling out of the gospel, false teachers are labeled accursed. They stand condemned before God. And as we saw last time we looked at this in February, judgment is coming. It's coming. I mean, imagine if we were to put this in our local context. If Steve were to come back from the U.S. and people are supporting us and we're like, we've got a great vision for the future and the church has has money to spend on the gospel and, well, we say, well, you know, the elders would like some spending money. So I think we're just going to kind of give the elders like $20,000 each to, to spend because, you know, they need to go on holiday or something like that. I mean, you look at all slow work like we're crazy, but I mean, and, and I, I say this in jest, but, you know, this happens in more subtle ways. Two, let's say we were to build a new church and all of the elders' efforts went into designing the offices instead of the ways that we can best serve the community or best proclaim the gospel. And, and, and you know, this, this is a bit funny, but, like, you know, there are teachers out there that built themselves multi, multi-million dollar housing complexes from their ministries. I mean, beware of someone who looks good and talks good, but always seems to want money. False teachers are experts in greed. And as Jesus himself said, you know, you can't serve both God and money. But not only are false teachers doomed. I mean, it would be bad enough, like it's, it, it, it's a sorry tale to look at what's, what's waiting false teachers. But, but what really is heartbreaking and what's driving Peter's diatribe, for lack of a better word here, is that it's not just that false teachers are doomed, they're going to drag other people down with them. Take a look at verse 17. These people are springs without water and mist driven by storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. See, water is life. I mean, we can't go very long without water. About three days, I think they say, give or take a little bit, depending upon the person. And so, False teachers here in this, this, this image of, of, of springs without water, they give the appearance of having and offering life. But actually, they're empty. And if you're in the middle of the desert and you go what looks like towards what looks like a spring because you, you are thirsty and you need water and you spend all this time to go out of your way to go to what you think is a spring and it turns out to be empty, you're in big trouble because the next spring might be three days away and you have no water. These false teachers give the appearance of life, but they are actually empty. They offer freedom, but they themselves are slaves. And what are the consequences of this? They entice people 
back into bondage. And there are a couple of issues that naturally arise from this passage. I mean, first of all, who are these people who are just escaping from error? That's, that's, a, that's a natural question we would ask. Uh, now, this doesn't necessarily imply here uh, true believers. They have the appearance of young, immature believers, but I may claim to be a Christian, but only God actually knows if my life is submitted to him. However, if you were to look at the, my trajectory of my life, if you could, could, could kind of x-ray my life, so to speak, and, and look at the trajectory of it, then you probably would be able to say with a fair degree of confidence whether or not I'm depending upon God, if my life reflects that I'm chasing after God, if I, my life reflects that God is sanctifying me, he is changing me. At the most here, Peter is talking about immature believers, those who may be harder to, may, for those for who it may be harder to say they have a genuine faith in Christ. But to a degree, they're still escaping from the world, from those who live in error. You still got to kind of got one foot in your past life. And there's a basic principle that we need to apply when we're trying to understand the Bible, uh, which is that it never contradicts itself. So the Bible never contradicts itself. So, so when we look at two passages that seem to conflict, we've got to resolve them in such a way such that, that they don't contradict each other. So if you were to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, he actually asserts in verse 5, as, as, as Tom Schreiner says in his commentary on 2 Peter, that God guards believers so that they will certainly, not probably, certainly obtain final salvation. So true believers will certainly obtain final salvation. And we also see similar language with the false teachers. Peter uses Christian language to describe them being part of the church, and yet in chapter 2, it makes it pretty clear what their ultimate end is. And more than just their ultimate end, they were destined for destruction. John also echoes this in his first letter, uh, in 1 John, when he says, chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are all, that they all are not of us. And this mirrors chapter one of Second Peter, where Peter calls on us to make sure that our salvation, by cha- that sure of our salvation by chasing after God and letting him demonstrate the work of his spirit in our lives. And, you know, to be honest, there are disagreements about the nuances of this among, among believers, namely whether a believer can quote-unquote lose his salvation, a true believer can quote-unquote lose his salvation. But what is, what is really clear from this passage, and what I want you to focus on, because it's the thrust of this, of this point here, is that saving faith is marked by perseverance. Saving faith is marked by perseverance. And this gives rise to to a second question that we might ask, which is why anyone is worse off for having known the way of truth, and what does does falling under the sway of false teachers necessarily result in destruction? In other words, is there any hope for those who are led astray by false teachers? Now, this passage is primarily concerned here with the final end of false teachers and those who follow after them. But as we saw last time I preached 2 Peter, God will rescue his people. That's an absolute. You can take that to the bank. God will rescue his people. Just as God rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. You cannot think of much more of a hopeless situation than Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet God rescued him. And so there's always hope since God only knows the heart. He knows who is truly are his. But this should give us pause because this whole thing, this whole discussion is, is a very serious matter. This is not kind of some 
iffy thing where we kind of fall on one side or the other. This is life and death. Hearing the truth and outright rejecting it indicates a hardness of heart. So if we hear the truth and we reject it, it indicates a hardness of heart and in some sense we're better, we were better off not knowing the truth because it didn't, it didn't necessarily, it doesn't show how our heart has rejected God. And there's an implicit warning here, not because Peter is explicitly setting out to, to warn us that, you know, beware of this and do this. He's actually more interested in, in stating the final end of false teachers and the consequences of their message. But these consequences should act as a warning of the dangers of dabbling in their teaching. And this brings us back to chapter 1. And the question we asked of whether or not we are mature, are we growing in Christ or are we just kind of barely escaping from the world? I mean, do you know the gospel? Do you remember what it means for your life? Can you say that your life reflects this? Are you living it out? Are you a different person today than you were last year? I'm going to ask some questions and I don't want you guys to actually answer these out loud, but in your mind, I want you to honestly answer these questions because... This is, this is a really serious matter. The be- best guard against false teaching is maturity. So, first question. Do you want to know God more than anything else? Yes or no? I'm not talking about every moment of every day because we, you know, we all have ups and downs, right? You know, there are, there are days when my life like, does not reflect that I want to know God more than anything else. But I'm saying if you look over your life as a whole, over the past year, say that's maybe a sufficiently big period of time, would you say your life has been marked by wanting to know Jesus more than anything else? Second question, has God given you everything you need to live a transformed life? Is he able to change you? So if that statement I just said, has God given you everything, that question I asked, is that true? Do you believe that? Do you really believe that God has given you everything that you need to live a transformed life? That he can change you? Third, does your life reflect that you are chasing after God? And by, what the, by this I mean, are you a changed person? Are you a different person? Is do you, do you have more spiritual virtues and less spiritual vices than you did last year? Not have you come to some greater spiritual understanding and you, you know more. I'm not asking if you know more. I'm asking, does your life reflect? Would those around you say that this year you are less angry, less selfish, more loving, more generous, more self-controlled? And I'm not asking for even much here. I'm saying, have you changed? Not have you reached the absolute standard of loving? I'm asking, have you changed? Has God changed you such that you have, you have, you have grown in the qualities, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and, and you're putting to death sin in your life at all? And finally, can you affirm that the Bible is the very word of God? And I don't mean just intellectually. I mean, is it authoritative in your life? When you face a big life decision, let's say, you know, I don't know, I can't even think of an example right now, but you face big life decisions or you face crises or you face troubles or trials or struggles, where do you go to find your answers? Where do you go to figure out how you should react, how you should live, where your hope should be? 
Or does the Bible have very little impact on your day-to-day life? Don't really read it, just kind of show up at church, listen to a sermon, go home, do your own thing. And if you could not answer, if, or rather, if you could not answer any one of these questions with a resounding yes, then you need to start maturing. We need to guard against the surface-level Christianity which opens us up to the lies of false teachers and which might ultimately mean we never really understood the gospel. We need to beware of false teachers, but more importantly, we need to chase Christ. We need to chase Christ. So what are the consequences of false teachers? Death. Death. For them and those who follow after them. This is what's at stake here. Life and death. And, and uh, to, to kind of make this, kind of drive this home, I, I, I want to get really practical here and give, give you guys two examples of how destructive false teachers can be and the path that they lead us down. So I'm going to use two examples. They're real examples, real people. These are not hypotheticals. Um, and, so, and they revolve around two particular false teachings. So the first one, at the root of all false teaching is sin. I mean, we, we know that. The root of all false teaching is sin. And, and we talked about, you know, the defining sins of false teachers. And at the root of this one in first here, health and wealth is greed. And there's a theology that many of you may have heard of called health and wealth. It's also sometimes called word of faith. It has a number of distinctives, but most probably the well-known is, most well-known is the belief in and speaking out loud assertions about God's provision, specifically related to health and material possessions, necessarily results in God providing. Additionally, the theology tends to assert that faithful Christians are necessarily going to receive those benefits. So faithful Christians will necessarily receive those benefits. And if you don't receive them, it's because you're living in sin. Now, there, there are a number of variants of this particular theology, but at the core of them, at the core of it all is greed. Because I want God's stuff, not God. Not just I want, but I have the power to demand God's stuff. And my words unlock those, that power. But the problem is, what is the alternative here? Either God doesn't give you what you want, and this leads to dissatisfaction, bitterness, and envy, or he does, and you end up chasing after his stuff instead of him. I mean, I think it's telling that this theology comes out of the affluence of North America, where we need reasons to justify our pursuit of stuff. Two of the most popular proponent, two of the more popular proponents of this false gospel that you might have heard of include Kenneth Copeland on the right and Joyce Joel Osteen on the top left. And, and I want you guys to know the reason these people are false teachers is, is not because everything they say is false. They actually say some very good and true things. The problem is the false things that they say are going to kill you. In fact, I was talking to Pastor Steve um, on the phone yesterday and we were discussing the sermon and and you're all going to get an earful about this when you get back, but he was, when he gets back, but he was saying how every pastor he met on his trip, without prompting, without fail, told him about how Joel Osteen is destroying the church in Texas. How much damage he's causing to their flocks. So there was a couple who, used to, who went to, to Pastor Steve's old church, Grace Baptist Church, in PEI. And so they were attending 
a solid gospel-centered church where people were teaching them the word of God. And in all appearances, they looked like they were doing good. But then tragedy struck. And the wife was diagnosed with cancer. See, false teaching is a little bit like a time bomb. It often doesn't manifest itself until tragedy strikes, when you're vulnerable. So instead of turning to God and her church for support, she turned back to her friends from her upbringing who told her, if you just have enough faith, you will be healed. God doesn't want you to have cancer. Jesus died on the cross to get rid of cancer. But she didn't get better. She was believing and declaring that she would be healed. So what could be the problem? What could be the problem? You see, the problem was her husband. He didn't have enough faith. He wasn't declaring God's blessing over her. So she blamed him. He was the reason she was sick. It got so bad at the end that she wouldn't even talk to him or let her near her because he was at fault. If she could just surround herself with enough declarations and belief that she would be, she would be healed. And he wasn't going to go along with it. And so, she died bitter and alone. False teaching brings nothing but spiritual death. Nothing but spiritual death. About a decade ago, when I was in university, the emergent church movement was the cool new kid on the block. Now, for those of you who are not super familiar with the movement, it was basically an attempt to make the gospel relevant to our culture. You see, Christianity has been dying a slow death in North America. And so some people thought, well, if we just tweak it a little bit to make it more palatable to young people, then they'll come back to the church in droves. And, and for a while, it seemed to be working. But you see, the emergent move had one really big problem. And that was it was a false gospel. Now, this is not to say that all the many problems they articulated were not real problems. They were. And not to say that everyone at all associated with the movement necessarily went so far as to abandon the gospel. But the logical conclusion of a movement that assumes the culture is correct and the gospel can be changed is what? It's to change the gospel. You see, at the heart of the emergent movement is pride. The same pride that led Adam and Eve to think they knew better than God in the garden tries to tell us we know better than the word of God now. It can be reinterpreted and reimagined to fit our cultural context. There was one particularly popular emergent preacher, and you can see a picture of him up there, by the name of Rob Bell. Some of you may have heard of him. He founded a megachurch in Michigan, which in 2011 had an average weekly attendance of around 11,000 people. Pretty successful. But what shot him to particular widespread popularity was a series of videos that he did that were called the NUMA videos. I don't know how many of you heard of them. Anyone heard of them? Few people have heard of them, right? Um, the NUMA videos in which he would basically, it was kind of cool, there was kind of artsy music and he would, he would do a little sermonette in, in, in front of cool backgrounds to artsy music. And I actually remember watching some of these videos when I attended CF back in the day, and the early ones are actually very good. Um, I think Steve actually has some of them in his library, um, if, I, if I remember correctly. They articulated issues and problems and gospel truths in a compelling way. They really did. But then they started to change. 
subtly at first. I, I began to notice that this as a shift in emphasis, and I think the moment where this kind of crystallized in my mind was one video where he actually said it was wrong to make friends with unbelievers for the purposes of sharing the gospel with them. It was wrong to make friends for the express purposes of sharing the gospel. Now, I get where he's coming from because he's reacting, he was reacting to this kind of notches in my belt approach to Christianity. You know, I don't really care about people. I'm just going to try and list, get a list of converts that I've achieved, that I've brought into church instead of actually loving and caring for them. But, and this is a really big but, Jesus told us to what? Go into the world and make disciples, not make friends. <laughs> We can't get rid of that responsibility. And we should by always make every effort to tell all people about the gospel. And this is the most loving thing that we could possibly do. What good does it do to drag someone out of poverty if they're still destined for final destruction? And I'm not saying we shouldn't do these quote-unquote social justice things because as we saw a few weeks ago in 2 Timothy, Pastor Steve preached on this, the church needs to be about these things. We need to be taking care of the vulnerable. We need to be loving our community. We need to be loving each other. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. But as time went on, these warning signs regarding Rob Bell began to increase. There was a lot of pushback, I remember, from people who still like listening to him saying that all the criticism that was kind of floating around from some sectors was judgmental and, and mean-spirited. And maybe some of it was, but the problem is that Rob Bell rarely came out and said anything. He just asked questions. And you've all heard that saying, you know, the truth is never afraid of a question. Truth is never afraid of a question. But the problem is there's two types of questions. There's the questions that actually want an answer, and then there are those sort of questions that you get in the garden when the serpent, when Satan says, did God really say? Did God really say? And it was clear to me at this point that Rob Bell was not someone I would ever be encouraging anyone to listen to. And yet I didn't realize how destructive he was to become. I should point out at, at, at this, by this point, so today, 2016, Rob Bell has pretty much renounced every tenant of the gospel and appears on Oprah offering spiritual advice. He doesn't even really call himself a Christian anymore. It's kind of like this vague spiritualist sort of thing. Uh, so he's kind of completed his trajectory of false teaching, shall we say. But this example isn't so much about him as much as the people who he killed with his words. Another Christian group on campus persisted in showing NUMA videos and placing themselves under the teaching of Rob Bell, long after Munsef stopped. And in my fourth university, I would say, I had what was one of the most profoundly disturbing conversations I've ever had. And I think why it stands out to me, it was the point at which I realized how destructive false teaching can be, and particularly how destructive Rob Bell had been. Now, this group that had continued to show Rob Bell had some issues. I mean, many of the people attending were somewhat immature Christians. There was a lack of solid biblical teaching. Um, but in my first, in my, one day in my fourth year of university, I happened to be having lunch with the president of the group. And I don't remember even why it came up, but I made some sort of offhand remark about us being sinners. And her response was at the time, I don't agree with that. And I remember being dumbfounded at the time that a leader of a Christian group would reject such a basic tenet of the gospel. Like the basic thing, until we recognize that we're sinners, we don't know we need God's grace. And as the conversation went on, I realized she wasn't even a Christian. 
She didn't even understand the basic tenets of the gospel um, because her gospel to her had become whatever she wanted it to be. And mostly that was love and don't judge. And today this, she holds these views and listens to Rob Bell. She shared his podcast on Facebook recently saying that he speaks to my soul. And she's dead in her sins. She's dead in her sins because she followed the teaching of Rob Bell. And that should break our hearts. That should break our hearts. She thinks she's doing awesome, and yet she is dead. See, false teaching brings nothing but spiritual death. So we kind of come to a conclusion here, because I'm almost out of time, probably actually already out of time. I want to start by saying, if you are here and you don't know Christ, you haven't put your hope and your faith in what he did on the cross to die. Because as John Piper said earlier, he makes us perfect. We don't have to do anything. He makes us clean. Then please come and talk to me or one of the other elders afterwards. We would love to talk to you about the gospel and about what Jesus has done. But for those of you who have your hope in Christ, don't be seduced by false teachers. They may look good. What they preach might sound good, but really they're just like pigs with lipstick on them. And they offer nothing but death. Don't fall for their lives. Dive into the word of God. Seek out godly men and women who will disciple you and not tell you what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. So are you maturing? Are you maturing? Are you growing? Are you being sanctified by God's word, by his spirit? Or have you still got one foot kind of in the world? Make every effort to live out 2 Peter chapter 1. Go read it again. Don't be content with where you are. Put your hope in God's word and make it the foundation of your life and chase after God. Growing up into all maturity. Because the lies out there are incredibly persuasive. And if we're not standing on the built up, standing on and built up in the gospel, we're vulnerable. But finally, I want you guys all to take hope. Because God knows all this. He knows how weak we are. He knows how much we struggle. And that's why he gave us his word to teach us, to guide us, and to transform us. And he is bigger. He is greater. He is more powerful than all the lies that are out there. And as we're going to see next time we look at 2 Peter, he's coming back. He's coming back. And that should give us great joy and great hope. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. For the hope that it gives us that we don't have to live up, that you have done that for us and you are working out in us. But Lord, I pray that every single person in this room would be built up by your word, that they would put their hope in you, that they would chase after you, that they would not be content with just living their life and having a bit of you on the side, but they would full, wholeheartedly chase after you. They would build their lives on the truth of your gospel. They would turn to you for guidance. Lord, I pray that you would protect this church 
from false teaching. Protect your people. Rescue your people. Father God, I pray that we would never stop striving to chase after you. To grow more in you. To know you more. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.